Welcome to Crime, Corruption, and Cocktails, the true crime podcast where we look at cases of corruption and negligence and examine their historical and cultural implications. Today, I'm drinking a hard cider. What do you have, Del? I am drinking a twisted tea, and in this week's episode, we are going to look at the murders committed by the so-called vampire clan, whose leader was Rod Farrell. Roderick Justin Farrell was born on March 28, 1980 in Murray, Kentucky. He was a member of a loose-knit gang of teenagers from Murray, Kentucky, known as the quote-unquote vampire clan. Farrell claimed to be a 500-year-old vampire named Fasego a character he created for himself after becoming obsessed with the role-playing game Vampire the Masquerade after his mother, Sandra Gibson, introduced him to the game. On November 25, 1996, Naomi Ruth Queen and Richard Wendolph were found by their daughter, Jennifer Wendolph, beaten to death in their home. When 49-year-old Richard was asleep on his couch and Ruth was in the shower, Farrell and accomplice Howard Scott Anderson had entered the home through the unlocked garage, picking up the murder weapon, a crowbar. Before Richard had even awakened, Farrell beat him multiple times with it, fracturing both his skull and ribs, almost instantly knocking him out and killing him shortly thereafter. When Ruth found Farrell and Anderson in the home moments later, Farrell bludgeoned her to death, bashing her head with the crowbar. He claimed in his confession, however, that his original plan was to allow Naomi Ruth to live, but she attacked him first by lunging at him and throwing a very hot cup of coffee on him. This angered him and made him change his mind, so he killed her also. Richard had burnt marks in the shape of a V. It was said that the V was Pharaoh's symbol, which he accompanied with a dot for each person he considered to be in his vampire cult. The victims were the parents of Heather Wendolph, a longtime friend of Pharaoh's, whom he was helping to run away from a home that she described as quote-unquote hell. Heather and the other girls that were with Pharaoh and Anderson were not at the Wendor home when the murders took place. Charity Kesey and her friend Dana Cooper had driven Heather to her boyfriend's apartment so Heather could say goodbye before leaving for New Orleans, leaving Roderick and Scott outside the Windor home. After four days of driving through four states, the group was found in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. It is believed that Farrell liked a video arcade in New Orleans, so they were headed there. One of the girls, Charity Kesey, placed a call to her grandmother in South Dakota. The group needed money and Charity thought her grandmother could help them. However, Kesey's grandmother informed the police about her whereabouts and helped them trick Farrell, Wendorf, and the rest of the teens into going to a local Howard Johnson's hotel where they were arrested by awaiting law enforcement. The four were held at a Baton Rouge jail for a week before being extradited back to Florida, where they were initially booked at the Lake County Jail. They were later moved to a juvenile facility in Ocala. Farrell's attorneys tried to argue that he was insane. He has been diagnosed with mental disorders, including schizotypal personality disorder and Asperger syndrome. Judge Jerry T. Lockett sentenced Farrell to death. Charity Kesey was convicted of two counts of third-degree murder, robbery with a gun or deadly weapon, and burglary armed with a weapon or explosives. She was sentenced to 10 and a half years in state prison. 
Dana Cooper was convicted of those charges as well, but was given in a 17 and a half year prison sentence. Anderson was convicted of the same charges as Farrell and was sentenced to life in prison. For two years, Farrell held the record as the youngest inmate on death row. This changed in November 2000 when the Florida Supreme Court reduced his sentence to life in prison. Kesey was released from prison in March 2006 and Cooper was released from prison in October 2011. In January 2013, an appellate court dismissed attempts by Roderick Farrell and Howard Scott Anderson to get a new sentencing hearing. In December 2018, Howard Scott Anderson was resentenced by Circuit Judge Don Briggs to 40 years in prison. Anderson was given credit for the 22 years he has already served, making him first eligible for release in 2031. Anderson is currently incarcerated in the Calhoun Correctional Institution while Farrell is in the Northwest Florida Reception Center Annex. Jenny, what are your thoughts on the vampire clan murders? It's pretty wild. Definitely seems like something a bunch of teenagers would do. It just seems so senseless. I mean, I don't know what Heather was going through. I don't know what she shared with Roderick, but I would like to know more about, you know, if what was going on in the house and if Jennifer, who I'm assuming is Heather's sister, also felt like she was in a living hell, like she, I guess, had told Roderick. It just seems like so ridiculous and people's lives ruined because of something stupid and violent and crazy you do when you're a teenager. What do you think? I feel the same. I feel like if it wasn't for the vampire aspect of this case, it would probably mirror a lot of like local cases that don't get a lot of attention. I think that it's interesting that his mental disorders weren't used as some sort of like mitigating factor and he was still sentenced to death. That of course did get reduced, luckily. Another aspect of this is just how brutal it was. Like you, I don't know what she had shared, but the fact that you beat two people to death over what we know that she shared that it was just hell at the home, that speaks to just a level of violence that doesn't really connect with like the motivation information that we have. It's definitely an insane case. And I think that Charity and Dana, hopefully they have been able to put their vampire cult lifestyle behind them and have been able to lead relatively normal lives. There wasn't a lot of information on what they've been doing now, but hopefully they are in a much better place than they were when they were, you know, assisting with this crime and then being in prison for Dana for almost 20 years. It is suspected that Rod suffered from Renville's syndrome or clinical vampirism, but there has been some doubts over whether this is a real syndrome. Clinical vampirism, more commonly known as Renville's syndrome, is an obsession with drinking blood. The earliest presentation of clinical vampirism in psychiatric literature was a psychoanalytic interpretation of two cases contributed by Richard L. Vandenberg and John F. Kelly. Over 50,000 people 
addicted to drinking blood has appeared in the psychiatric literature from 1892 to 2010. This was documented in the work of Austrian forensic psychiatrist Richard von Croft Ebing. According to the case history reports in the older psychiatric literature, the condition starts with a key event in childhood that causes the experience of a blood injury or the adjusting of blood to be exciting. After puberty, the excitement is experienced as sexual arousal. Through adolescence and adulthood, blood, its presence, and its consumption can also stimulate a sense of power and control. Arthur... So, Noel suspected that Renfield syndrome began with auto-vampirism or consuming your own blood and then progresses to the consumption of the blood of other creatures, including other humans. Very few cases of the syndrome have been described and the published reports that do exist describe clinical vampirism as behaviors that are subsumed under more conventional psychiatric diagnostic categories such as schizophrenia and paraphilia. Many medical publications concerning clinical vampirism can be found in literature of forensic psychiatry with the behavior being reported as an aspect of extraordinarily violent crimes. Richard Knoll created the term Renfield Syndrome with the intent to parody what he viewed as 1980s psychobabble before the joke was taken seriously in popular culture. The original term, clinical vampirism, was seen as a suitable subject for satire due to its doubtful utility and has effectively been completely replaced. The syndrome is named after R.M. Renfield, Dracula's human zoophagus follower in that 1897 novel by Bram Stoker. In a web interview with psychology professor Catherine Ramsland, Noel explained how he invented the term and its purported diagnostic criteria as a whimsical parody of 1980s psychiatry and quote-unquote new DSM speak. The prior diagnosis the prior diagnosis of clinical vampirism was somewhat different from Renfield syndrome. Clinical vampirism, clinical vampirism usually connotes an erotic obsession with blood, while Renfield syndrome more resembles an eating disorder involving the consumption of blood and or living animals. Neither clinical vampirism nor Renfield syndrome have ever been listed as valid diagnoses in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, otherwise known as the DSM. Jenny, what are your thoughts on Renfield syndrome and do you think it's real? I've never heard of this before, but I mean, I can see it being real. I don't know how many people it would afflict, but I mean, I think that people do just have unnatural obsessions with certain things, whether it's like related to the body or not. I'm sure we've all seen like My Strange Addiction. I feel like this is something that would be on there. To me, I guess it does what we just said. It sounds more like an eating disorder rather than like a sexual element to it. So I do think they do need to be categorized as like two different things. But I do feel like both are true. But I guess maybe I should hear about some more cases of this. I'm sure this is not the only case where this has happened or you know, someone just has like a compulsion or obsession with consuming blood. Yeah, I, I don't know. That sounds realistic to me. What do you think? Yeah. 
There are definitely other cases which we're going to talk about later in this episode. I agree. It's one of those things where I can definitely understand when he's talking about, you know, like new DSM speak, you know, the pop psychology and a lot of the language that people tend to use. But I don't think that it's something that is so out of the realm of possibility to be true. And I think that it can be a situation where it's both, you know, for some people, it presents as akin, you know, closely to like an eating disorder. And for other people, it's a paraphilia, something where sexual arousal is involved. I do think it's interesting that, of course, they include probably the most famous example of a vampire in media. And I do wonder if that association has led to people thinking that it's just not a real thing and thus it's not something that's been considered a valid diagnosis. And honestly, if the numbers are correct and from 1892 to 2010, it's been 50,000 people, that doesn't seem that common. You know, it definitely seems like it's something that is very rare and sporadic. So I'm not surprised that there's likely not going to be too much research into it to actually get a definitive answer for, you know, why some people may be afflicted with this supposed condition. Yeah, I know I had mentioned my strange addiction. And to me, like this sounds more... I don't know. I don't want to say understandable, but like more believable, I guess, than some of the stuff that is on there. Like, I don't know. At least blood is like a natural, I don't know. At least blood is like, I guess like a more natural thing. Like there's people that have been on those types of shows that will eat like cocktail stirs. They're obsessed with eating nail polish um, for various reasons. And I don't know, to me, the thought of like, I wonder if I like licked some of this blood, what would happen makes more sense than like, Oh, I wonder if I drank this nail polish, what would happen? And I don't know, maybe I can see people enjoying the blood more than like drinking nail polish or anything that's been on that show. I don't know. Maybe I'm one of the freaks too. (laughs) (laughs) No, but I guess I am too, because that makes complete sense to me because I can imagine like, you know, you're, you know, really any age and like you get a cut on like your arm and your first thing is to like put it in your mouth to try to like use that to stop bleeding. Right. So it's like, there's a non like psychologically harmful way that you can come into contact that way. Right. But when it comes to those other things, like you have to make a concerted effort to consume it. You know, people don't just accidentally consume nail polish. I know I saw one person on a show, it was like chalk. It was like the gymnastics chalk that she was obsessed with. And I'm just like, like, how does that even start? So yeah, listen, maybe we're both like freaks in this instance. Because again, like the blood thing seems much more reasonable to me than like household items. Comment down below if you get what we're talking about. (laughs) (laughs) A connected phenomenon 
that is seen with or without Renfield syndrome is people being obsessed with vampires, sometimes to the point of it consuming their lives. This is known as the vampire lifestyle and the rise of vampire-related media and the internet has increased the number of people who try to live their lives as real-life vampires. The vampire lifestyle, vampire subculture, or vampire community is an alternative lifestyle and subculture based around the mythology of and popular culture based on vampires. Those within the subculture commonly identify with or as vampires, with participants typically taking heavy inspiration from media and pop culture based on vampiric folklore and legend such as gothic soap operas, Dark Shadows, the tabletop role-playing game Vampire the Masquerade, which Rod Farrell was obsessed with, and the book series The Vampire Chronicles by author Anne Rice. Practices within the vampire community range from blood drinking from willing donors to organizing groups known as quote-unquote houses and quote-unquote courts of self-identified vampires. The vampire subculture largely stems from the goth subculture, but also incorporates some elements of the sadomasochism subculture. Though the vampire subculture has considerable overlap with the gothic subculture, the vampire community also has overlap with the Therian and other kin communities and are considered by some to be a part of both despite the difference in cultural and historical development. The internet provides a prevalent form of communication for the subculture along with other media such as glossy magazines devoted to the topic. Participants within the subculture range from those who dress as vampires but understand themselves to be human to those who assert a need to consume either blood or quote-unquote human energy. Both types of vampires may assert that the consumption of blood or energy, sometimes referred to as auric or pranic energy, is necessary for spiritual or physical nourishment. Vampire, spelled with a Y, is an alternative term used to connote a quote-unquote real vampire. There are several types of vampire lifestyles, sanguinarians who consume the blood of others, psychic vampires who claim to obtain nourishment from the aura or pranic energy of others in order to balance a spiritual or psychological energy deficiency, such as a damaged aura or chakra, hybrids who consume hybrids who both consume blood and assert that they consume psychic energy. Blood donors willingly allow other members of the subculture to drink their blood and may or may not exhibit subservience toward those who do. Blood fetishists use blood as a stimulant or sexual fetish, sometimes drinking it during the course of sadomasochistic sex. Role players or lifestylers who acknowledge that they are human beings role playing as vampires. According to Catherine Ramslin, the author of Piercing the Darkness from 1998, vampire culture includes, quote, vampires, donors, victims, experts, chroniclers, hunters, readers, writers, musicians, magicians, strippers, squatters, dominatrixes, role players, criminals, divas, entrepreneurs, fetishists, and conventioneers, end quote. And estimates suggest that, quote, Vampire culture is now in the tens of thousands for hardcore participants and 10 times that number for people with a mild or part-time interest, end quote. 
Jenny, what are your thoughts on the vampire lifestyle and the different types of individuals who consider themselves to be vampires? I think it's pretty interesting to learn about. I've definitely like seen a little bit of vampire lifestyle. I think like on the X-Files, they've shown it. I know I'm pretty sure when I was on a ghost tour in New Orleans, there was like a vampire related murder there that we talked about. We went um, on the tour into like a vampire store. It's interesting. I've never met anyone into this. I'm kind of interested like to learn more about it, not to practice, but I just find it interesting. And I guess with like, if you're going to pick I guess any kind of like occultist or like movie monster to become interested in like vampires in our culture, I feel like have always been very sexy in movies, TV books. So I can understand why it draws people in. I think there's definitely something like very intimate about vampires and vampirism, which I'm assuming, like I said, is why people are also interested. I think the I can see like too why it's related to like gothic subculture um, and where the overlap comes from. The different types of uh, vampires is interesting to hear about. I don't I don't want to call people weird because you don't you don't need to include that. Uh, I'm just trying to think of what I want to say because like they're not like if you're into that that's fine. I guess something that I find interesting and something I don't understand is like people's level of commitment to this. I find that interesting. I would like to hear like a firsthand account about like, you know, how we can say that these people, some people can recognize like I'm a human role playing as a vampire, whereas other people are like, I'm a vampire and I consume people's blood and also their psychic energy to get to get, you know, some kind of balance in my life or to give you balance. I think that's interesting. And I wonder, you know, what else has gone on in people's lives to live these kinds of lives? What do you think? Yeah, I agree. It's really interesting. It's one of those things where I just wonder how being within the vampire like lifestyle or subculture how it may or may not conflict with just the normal everyday of being in our present society. Like, how are you earning money? Do you go to work as a vampire? Like, those are the types of questions that I have. You know, is it a thing where you are, you know, publicly speaking about being it? Do you section off your life where some of the people that you interact with, you share that you are involved in this vampire lifestyle where others you don't what kind of conversations do you have with your parents like those are the types of questions that kind of go through my mind when thinking about this because like you said this is a like a commitment this is not just something that you like you watch Dracula and you're like oh okay I'm going to now become a vampire like this takes just again dedication and depending on you know, what type you are, right? It takes a really strong bond with someone else. Like, how does the conversation go with someone where you're like, I want to consume your blood? Like, 
to me and my, you know, non-vampire brain, that sounds like the craziest of conversations that will cause 99.9% of people to run in the opposite direction. Again, not to yuck anyone's yum, but I do have several questions. And I agree, I would love to hear from someone who is in this, you know, lifestyle about how they actually got into it, how they manage it. And do they see this as something that they're going to be continuing for the rest of their lives? For me, the most interesting type, though, are the role players. Because for the other ones, you can speak of probably like a psychological driver to why they're doing it, right? Or, you know, they could have Renfield syndrome. But if you're a role player, you're acknowledging that you're human, but you may still be consuming other humans' blood. You might still be saying that you're getting psychic energy. Like, how does that work? I did think that the author's Um, Kind of her just like list of people that are involved. It really seems like it's everyone. Like there is no like group of people that is just immune to kind of like the lore and appeal of being a vampire. Again, not my thing, but like you said, it's definitely something that's interesting that, you know, reading about it and learning more is definitely probably going to be a very interesting uh, read or watch. The Vampire Clan is not the only suspected vampire-related killings. We are going to look at a few more, and the first is that of Robert Chase. He was nicknamed the Vampire of Sacramento because he drank his victim's blood and cannibalized their remains. Chase spent a brief time in a psychiatric ward in 1973. In 1976, he was involuntarily committed to a mental institution when he was taken to a hospital after injecting rabbit's blood into his veins. The staff nicknamed him, quote-unquote, Dracula because of his blood fixation. On December 29, 1977, Chase killed his first known victim in a drive-by shooting. The victim, Ambrose Griffin, was a 51-year-old engineer and father of two. On January 23, 1978, Chase broke into a house and shot Teresa Wallen, who was three months pregnant at the time, three times. He then had sex with her corpse while stabbing her with the butcher's knife. He then removed multiple organs, cut off one of her nipples, and drank her blood. On January 27th, Chase entered the home of 38-year-old Evelyn Miroff. He encountered her friend, Danny Meredith, whom he shot with his 22 caliber handgun. He then fatally shot Evelyn, her six-year-old son, Jason, and 22-month-old nephew, before mutilating Evelyn and engaging in necrophilia and cannibalism with her corpse. A visitor's knock on the door startled Chase, who fled in Meredith's car, taking David's body with him. The visitor alerted a neighbor who called the police. They discovered that Chase had left complete handprints and shoe imprints in Evelyn's blood. Chase was arrested shortly thereafter. Police who searched Chase's apartment found that the walls, floors, ceilings, refrigerator, and all of Chase's eating and drinking utensils were soaked in blood. 
1979, Chase stood trial on six counts of murder. In order to avoid the death penalty, the defense tried to have him found guilty of second-degree murder, which would result in a life sentence. Their case hinged on Chase's history of mental illness and the suggestion that his crimes were not premeditated. On May 8, 1979, the jury found Chase guilty of six counts of first-degree murder and rejecting the argument that he was not guilty by reason of insanity, sentenced him to die in the gas chamber. Chase granted a series of interviews with Robert K. Ressler, during which he spoke of his fears of Nazis and UFOs, claiming that although he had killed, it was not his fault. He had been forced to kill to keep himself alive, which he believed any person would do. He asked Ressler to give him access to a radar gun with which he could apprehend the Nazi UFOs so that the Nazis could stand trial for the murders. He also handed Ressler a large amount of macaroni and cheese, which he had been hoarding in his, in his pants pockets, believing that the prison officials were in league with the Nazis and attempting to kill him with poisoned food. On December 26, 1980, Chase was found dead in his prison cell. An autopsy revealed that he had killed himself with an overdose of prescribed medications. Next, we'll look at Atlas Vampire. On May 4th, 1932, a 31-year-old prostitute, Lily Lindestrom, was found murdered in her small apartment in the Atlas area of Stockholm near Sankt Eriksplund. She had been dead for two to three days before police broke into her apartment. She had suffered blunt force trauma to her head. Lily was found completely naked and face down on her bed. According to reports, sexual activity had taken place with a condom found to be protruding from her anus. The detectives noted that a gravy ladle was found at the scene, and on further inspection of the body, they realized her body had been drained of all her blood. Police suspected the implement was used by the perpetrator to drink Lily's blood. Various clients fell under suspicion, but after a lengthy investigation, none were charged with her murder, and the murder remains unsolved. The last case we're going to look at is that of Wayne Bolden. Bolden killed four women, three in Montreal and one in Calgary, earning the nickname the Vampire Rapist for biting the breasts of his victims. On October 3rd, 1969, Shirley Audet was found dead at the rear of an apartment complex in downtown Montreal, Quebec, Canada. Although she was fully clothed, she had been raped and strangled and savage bite marks were found on her breast. There were no signs of bloody skin under the fingernails of the victim. On November 23rd, Marilyn Archibald, a jewelry clerk, left work at closing time with a young man who sh whom she introduced to her co-workers as quote-unquote Bill and remarked that she seemed happy and entranced by the man. When Archibald did not report for work the following morning, her employer went to check on her at her apartment to see if she was ill. Together with her landlady, they discovered her fully clad body on the couch. The room was tidy, but Bolden had ripped her pantyhose and bra, raped her, and left bite marks on her breasts. The police were able to find a crumbled photograph amid the wreckage of her apartment, which was readily identified as the mysterious bill by her co-workers. However, despite this apparent break, the police were not successful in connecting the photograph to any known suspects, even though a police sketch based on the picture was distributed for publication in newspapers. The photo turned out to be Marilyn's dead father. On January 17th, 
1970, Brian Caulfield, the boyfriend of Jean Way, 24, came to pick her up for a scheduled date at her apartment on Lincoln Street in downtown Montreal. When Way did not answer the door, he decided to come back a little later, but upon returning, found the door unlocked. Caulfield found Way's naked body on the bed with her breasts undamaged. Bolden most likely... Bolden was most likely in Wade's apartment when Caulfield was knocking at the door earlier that evening. An autopsy conducted by Dr. Jean Paul Vancourt found two small fibers under the fingernails of her left hand. In Calgary, Alberta, Canada, a 33-year-old high school teacher named Elizabeth Ann Portois did not report to work on the morning of May 18, 1971. Her apartment manager was called who found her body on the bedroom floor. As with Marielle, her apartment showed considerable signs of a struggle and Elizabeth had been raped and strangled. Her breasts were likewise mutilated with bite marks. Amid the wreckage, however, the police recovered a broken cuff link under the victim's body. In their investigation of the murder, the police were able to find out from two of her colleagues that she was seen at a stoplight riding in a blue Mercedes-Benz on the night she died. The car was reported as having a distinctive advertising bowl-shaped decal in the rear window. A friend of the victim also informed police that she had recently been dating a man named Bill, described as a quote-unquote flashy dresser with neat short hair. The following day on May 19th, the blue Mercedes was spotted by patrolmen parked near the murder scene. Bowden, a former fashion model, was arrested half an hour later as he went to his car. He told the police that he moved from Montreal a year previous and admitted that he had been dating Portio and was with her on the night of her murder. When the broken cufflink was presented to him, he admitted its ownership. However, he insisted that she was fine when he left her that night. The police contacted Gordon Swan, a local orthodontist, to help prove that the mark on her breasts and neck were Bowden's bite marks with the intent to verify them as having been left by Bowden. As there was nothing in Canadian literature on forensic odontology at the time, Swan wrote to the Federal Bureau of Investigation in the U.S. hoping for any information on the matter. Swan received a reply from FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover, who directed him to England, where he met a man who had dealt with 20 or 30 cases regarding bite marks. Swan was able to get the information he needed, and based on a cast made of Bowdoin's teeth, he managed to demonstrate 29 points of similarity between the bite marks in Portillo's body and Bowdoin's teeth. The jury of Bowdoin's trial found him guilty for the murder of Elizabeth Porto and subsequently sentenced to life imprisonment. Bowden was the first murderer to be convicted in North America based on odontological evidence. Bowden then returned to Montreal to face trial, where he confessed to the three murders of Shirley, Marielle, and Jean, and was sentenced to three additional life terms. Bowden was sent to Kingston Penitentiary in Kingston, Ontario, Canada, where he began serving his sentence on February 16, 1972. Bowden died from skin cancer at Kingston General Hospital on March 27, 2006, after being confined in the hospital for six weeks. Jenny, what are your thoughts on these other vampire killings? They're all so incredibly brutal and sexual and disgusting. I mean, they're, I feel like all just equally as bad as each other. And the Atlas vampire, that's so scary that no one was ever caught. I wonder 
if they stopped after this, I mean, I'm sure we would have heard if in the years following there was someone found in a similar way, but it's, it's so scary. Um, wrestler, I mean, or not wrestler with Robert Chase. It, if he did not, if he was not really struggling with mental illness, he's a damn good actor. Um, I mean, I'm sure people have seen those compilations of like people trying to act quote unquote crazy to seem crazy to get um, like a diagnosis for their trial or something. Um, But I mean, he's saying some wild stuff. And if he truly is suffering from mental illness, I feel bad for him because what he's saying sounds very scary, but you know, it does not excuse the brutality he put upon all of these people, including children. Um, it's interesting, or never mind. Um, and then with Wayne Bowden, again, just so brutal. Um, I'm glad the police were able to just put everything together and get him. I mean, it doesn't really sound like he was, he was almost like hiding in plain sight. I mean, I guess, I don't know if he thought his car wasn't going to get, um, wouldn't be recognized, but it sounds like it was kind of a distinctive car. Um, if he's like a flashy looking guy, I mean, that's also not going to help your case. Um, but you know, thank God that these women were talking to people and their lives about, you know, who they were interacting with. And that's like we said, how they were able to find him. Um, it's interesting that the bite marks were used in here. Uh, we do have an episode about how bite marks are not reliable, but I mean, in this case, it seems very obvious that he is the one that killed Elizabeth and these other women. What do you think? I agree with the Bolden case. It's one of those things where the reliability of the bite mark evidence is definitely questionable, but there was a lot of other evidence, including eyewitness uh, testimony, that showed that he was definitely the individual who was essentially going around town, being seen with the victim, and he even admitted that he was the last one to see Elizabeth before she was killed. I do think that just the process of them figuring out the bite mark evidence is interesting because they had nothing in Canadian literature. And so it was kind of a weird, like, okay, we need to go to this country and then this other country to actually figure out what was going on with the guest appearance from J. Edgar Hoover, who is controversial in his own way. So the fact that he supported them using bite mark evidence in this case and helped facilitate a connection to England uh, to get more information is not a surprise for me. With the Atlas vampire case, I just, it's one of those things where I definitely agree with you that If there was other cases that were similar that we should have definitely known, and this really doesn't seem like the type of crime that would only happen one time, stranger things have happened, right? And when it comes to Robert Chase, I think that he was severely mentally ill. And like you said, it doesn't excuse what he did, but just listening to the types of things that he shared during his interviews, it's clear that he had no real connection to reality. It makes me wonder, 
why he was released from his involuntary commitment in the first place. It's definitely a situation where if someone is exhibiting those signs that it may not be safe for them to be around the general public, I definitely think, you know, best practice is to keep them in the institution and give them the help that they need. I will say just as a side note, the whole the staff nicknamed him Dracula thing definitely left a bad taste in my mouth. I think it's really strange that the staff of a mental institution was essentially like I don't know, in a way, kind of minimizing the different things that they were seeing by trying to give it like a cutesy nickname. It just comes off as really wrong. And it comes off as they weren't taking that aspect of his pathology that seriously. That wraps up this week's case. Thank you for listening. Let us know in the comments what you think about the vampire clan killings. You can read more about this case and how to support us in the links below. We will be back next week with a brand new episode. As always, stay safe.